On today's show, I am speaking with Adam Borba, the author of Outside Nowhere and The Midnight Brigade. When he's not writing, he's making movies like Pete's Dragon and Peter Pan and Wendy with his friends. Today, we discuss his background in the movie industry, how this led him to write children's books, what these two worlds share in common, and advice for anyone looking to work in these industries. I hope you enjoy learning from Adam and his incredible career. Hey, Adam, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk with me on the show. Thanks for having me, Joe. Yeah, this is awesome, and I cannot wait to dive into this. I personally spent the last two weeks reading both of your books. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm, I'm from the Northeast. I know you're not. <laughs> I know your <laughs> wife not. is. But, you know, obviously uh, seeing all those like Pittsburgh references and, and uh, storylines around the cities. Um, I grew up in New Jersey, but definitely spent a good time in a good deal of time in Pittsburgh. So your, your, your career to me is very, very uh, exciting, especially for a lot of people listening who are probably like, wow, this guy writes books, but you're like, no, you've also had a pretty extensive background in film. And that's kind of where I wanted to start the pro the uh, podcast with was your journey sort of from movie producer. You know, you worked on films like Peace Dragon, Peter Pan and Wendy. Now you're doing obviously the children's book uh, authoring, which is pretty fascinating but i was wondering if you could talk about the uh what inspired the transition from film to book and how that creative process differs between movies and uh children's books so i i, I started writing middle grade fiction accidentally my uh my first book the midnight brigade started as what i thought was going to be a concept for a movie my job at the time was to help develop and produce movies for a production company at walt disney studios so I was always on the hunt for new things that might hit that tiny bullseye. And I wanted to find a story about a troll, but I couldn't find exactly what I was looking for. I was like searching through all these classic books and fairy tales. Meanwhile, as you mentioned, my, my wife is from Pittsburgh and, and once a year we go out there to see her family. And on those trips, I, I fell in love with the city and I was wowed by the number of bridges. I, I, I had no idea, but there's, there's over 400 bridges in Pittsburgh. So I, I figured, you know, statistically speaking, if you have over 400 bridges, there, there has to be a troll living at least one of them, right? <laughs> Why not? Yeah. <laughs> I started making notes for a movie. Most of our, new, our movies start off with like rough outlines that my colleagues and I would create. And I figured this would just be one of those, you know, get something down on paper, talk about it, and then decide whether or not it's a thing. And usually these outlines for films, like they start off about three pages long and we decide if we decide to move forward, then my colleagues and I will pass them off to a screenwriter who will, you know, work with us while making those stories their own. But my notes for this outline became more and more detailed. There was scene work and dialogue and it blew up in size fairly quickly. And like within a week I had like 15 to 20 pages and I realized like, Oh gosh, I'm, I'm writing a middle grade novel. And I, uh, I decided to just kind of keep going with it until I finished it. I, I didn't know if I could. And I didn't tell anyone about the project until I had a draft, like even my wife. And then luckily when I shared it with her and friends, they, they thought I was onto something. As far as children's books, I've always loved them and read them. It's, it's the one category of books that I've consistently read every year of my life. Like I'll go through phases where like I love spy thrillers or fantasy or nonfiction or you know, reading the classics or commercial fiction. 
but I keep coming back to middle grade. I mean, I love the length. I'm a slow reader, so I, I, I always take pride in finishing a book. <laughs> uh, but more importantly, I love that they're the stories that stuck with me as a kid and as an adult. And I love the idea that a kid could read something that I wrote and maybe love it as much as something I read when I was a kid. And I love the idea of making that kind of connection and having an impact. I love books and I love movies. But if you put my foot, my feet to the fire, I, I'd say that I love books just a little bit more. And being a dad is the most important thing to me. And being a father while producing movies and writing middle grade was, was stretching me too thin. I was doing all three of those things for about five years and I was exhausted all the time. I felt like I was working too hard to stay afloat. And I got to the point where I felt like I had to make a choice between books and movies for a bit. And I hate being away from my kids and with movies, if you're doing your job well, you know, you're away from the office making things or you're in the office long hours getting things ready to be made or ready to be finished. So I got to see my family less than I would have liked. And with writing, I work from home. Um, yeah, right. I take my kids to school. I pick them up. I eat dinner with my wife. So my quality of life is just exponentially better. Also, I love telling original stories and in the book space, at least now, because the movie business always goes through cycles. Like what's happening now isn't necessarily what's going to happen in two years or 10 years. But right now it's, it's much easier to tell original stories and get them out into the world. So creatively, it's much more satisfying. As far as the creative process goes, they both start the same way with those loose outlines. But with movies, those outlines are handed off to screenwriters and ultimately a director and cast and crew. And your job as a movie producer is to put it all together and then essentially help everyone else do the best job they can. Have the resources they need, stress test decisions, and to keep everyone working at least cordially on time and on budget. In writing middle grade, it's still a collaborative process, but... I'm doing the heavy lifting, initially getting feedback from my wife and friends and agent, and then working with my editor, Alexander Hightower at, at Little Brown, who plays a, a similar role to a movie producer. And, and then, you know, after we're done, it goes to a copy editor, uh, the book's illustrator, marketing and publicity. And with the latter stuff, it, it sort of does kind of start to feel like overlap with the release of a movie, uh, just on a, a different scale. On an average day writing, I'm sitting by myself in a room for eight to 10 hours a day and developing and producing movies. I'm working much longer days and, and interacting with countless people. <laughs> That's cool. My background in film has been always, you know, doing the PA thing, working at, you know, um, production companies and, and things like that, but never really got into the whole creative rooms with people. And I feel that's always something that always felt just mysterious to me. And, and that's really what I was interested in hearing about, because I feel like a lot of people listening, they know, like, because there's an executive producer and an associate producer and line producer and all these different producers and what sort of aspects uh, they have in the film world, right? And and for you to be able to take that and then kind of go like like a 180 into this, now it's just you in a room. That's, it's got to, I, I don't know if it feels like okay, there's like a lot, a lot less stress, or maybe there's maybe people who would be more demanding on you or are different. Now you have agents and, and 
you know, other, another set of, of people that might be sort of putting to bands, but maybe they feel a little more relaxed to you. I don't, I don't know, but it, that's kind of what it sounds like in listening to your, your day, you know, being able to see your family, all that stuff is a lot more rewarding. Not that, not that one career is not over the other, but you're having a lot more of that personal interaction with your family, which seems to be the most important to you. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, just like a, um, I, it really got to a point where like I, I missed my, my family. I missed not yeah. spending enough time with them. And then in, in, in terms of like the creative, yeah, Joe, like all, all the stuff you hit, I mean, there's, there's overlap with every one of those elements, but also there there's differences too. And like, it, as, as you guessed, it, it kind of hits all that stuff. Yeah. And, and like for you, you know, you talked about kids, but, but, but you being, uh, when you were a kid, you grew up in Palm Springs, right? And then now you're here, you know, what, a hundred miles away in, 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 in Hollywood. Like when you grew up, w were there any sort of influences that sort of took part in, in your storytelling drive or, or the determination you had for, for creativity, um, in this realm of, uh, children's literature based on growing up in Palm Springs? Yeah, I mean, I think I was really lucky to 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 grow up there. In in Palm Springs, like when I was a kid, there were tons of bookstores. The Palm Springs Public Library was, you know, this big building right in the in the center of town. Um, and then also, like in in addition to to books, I mean, movies is a big part of it. And like as as we'll talk, and I think you're getting already, like it it goes back and forth with me. Like there's so much overlap in terms of storytelling. But Palm Springs had a ton of movie theaters and, and it has even more now. There were art house movie theaters when I was a kid. And, and I, I feel like that was like the type of thing where like a lot of times like those small independent and foreign films, like you don't, you'd often only be able to see them in, in bigger cities. But, you know, Palm Springs was like this little town of 35 to 40,000 people were just like every movie that came out rolled through town and I had an opportunity to see it. It was also a city that's, you know, it's, it's filled with retired actors, writers, and directors, folks who made a living with creative jobs. And that made doing jobs like these feel possible. Like these people had done it, but probably the most important thing with Palm Springs was, was the international film festival. And it just like every January, the city would put it on and in like a week and a half period, I would see like 10 to 14 movies and just be immersed in those stories, like great ones and terrible ones. But like everything was, was wildly helpful. And, you know, just to have that as a, as a resource, I, I think changed and, and, and shaped me as a storyteller. That's all. Yeah. Palm Springs, like I, I've been in there many times myself and I, I do agree with you. I grew up in more of a, a casino town. So to me, it was, it wasn't like it was Atlantic city right next door to it. And it wasn't like Vegas where, you know, now kids go and there's shows and everyone's seeing these, right. It's just hardcore gamblers. <laughs> and you just kind of like, they show up, they gamble and they get out. Obviously it's changed over time. But when I grew up there, it was, it was definitely more of like the people that just rolled in sort of like you were, you, you know, you may had a lot of retirees, but you had this, I've seen the film festival there. It's pretty remarkable where you can kind of, you know, I, I would do that too. I would they do a great job. Yeah. I would run, I would run to, to Philly or New York or something and try to catch these little indie art house pictures and stuff like that. But it's, it'd be cool for being in a small town, having that come to you and having access and, and just being able to check that out. And when you came here, was your first job in, in the world in, in the agency at William Morris? 
Yeah, I mean, well, first hired job. Like when I, I went to college right. at, yeah, at, at USC and I did a ton of internships while, while I was there. Probably, you know, two or three, you know, a, a year. Um, I would just work out my, my college schedule where I, you know, had these two days off and those two days I would work. And then when I graduated, I, I eventually got a job at the William Morris Agency in the mailroom, and I, I worked my way up there for, geez, about four and a half years. And that was through the writer's strike and then also the, the merger with Endeavor. So uh, William Morris became a WME. And then shortly after that, I, uh, I finally made my jump to a, a production company, and I was there for about 13 years. Yeah. And well, so did that background, right? So, so you're at the agency, obviously now you have agents yourself, right? But in, in terms of like working in, in production companies and in agencies, did any of that background sort of shape your approach to crafting like these engaging narratives for these young readers or maybe any specific techniques or lessons from, from filmmaking that you applied to your writing? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess like everything is connected. So like, you know, first off in the movie business, you, you watch and you read a ton and you, you have to in, in those jobs to do them well. And it's, you're mostly reading screenplays, but you're also reading a lot of books and constantly. So you're, you're immersed in story. You're in meetings with screenwriters, directors, colleagues, studio executives, discussing story points and choices all day, and you form opinions, um, kind of no matter where you are in the totem pole. That's your job, to have taste and have vision, and then to eventually work with others to bring the collective vision to life. Ultimately, it's the, it's the director who oversees the creative but because you and the studio hired the director, chances are you're on the same page. You know, over the course of your career, you decide what you think works and what doesn't, and you decide what you like and the kinds of stories you want to tell. All my stories are, are driven by heart, humor, and magic, and that's a Disney thing. But it's the, the types of stories I've been drawn to my entire life, and those are the, the books and movies I loved as a kid. So those are the types of stories I aspire to tell as a filmmaker and, and now as an author. As far as specific techniques, I've learned in, in the movie business that kind of apply to the, uh, my work as an author. I think I'll just focus on the bigger ones. I'm, I'm sure there's hundreds. So filmmaking offers the luxury of telling stories with pictures, but it all starts with a screenplay, which is a document that's usually only a hundred pages or, or so long. And by the time we start production and those pages have a lot of blank space. So because scripts are so short, the storytelling on the page has to be efficient and every word matters. And I try to take that approach with my writing, cut out the boring stuff, anything that isn't essential. I also try to be as clear and economical as possible with character arcs. So readers understand how and why a character changes and grows as cleanly and efficiently as possible. Theme is also something I learned how to implement from filmmaking. When I'm developing a movie, one of the early goals I have is to get to like a one sentence message, something uni universal, something that each scene in the movie builds to, something that sums up what the movie is really about. It's rarely a line that's said out loud in the film, but it's always something that my colleagues, the director, the film's writers have like agreed to. Like a few examples, like in Pete's Dragon, it's 
everyone belongs somewhere. In Timmy failure, it's okay to be different. In Peter Pan and Wendy, it's everyone grows up at their own pace and wrinkle in time. It's everyone is deserving of love. When I'm writing, I try to figure out what the theme is before I begin a rough draft so I can tie it to the narrative and character as much as possible. Universal, clear, relatable, and not something you need to hit your audience or readers over the head with. Again, often the exact line isn't spoken or written in the story, but the subtext is clear because all the scenes in the piece build to that idea. Structure is something I learned from film development. My initial outlines for a movie or a book, again, are you know about three pages long, but they're traditional three-act structure. And in books, as I write and work with my editor, editor to revise, my drafts become longer as subplots are added and we dive deeper into character. So while the final manuscript isn't like a traditional feature structure, because I started the novel that way, the story seems structurally sound to me. As far as other important rules that I've learned uh, from the movie business, while I believe it's possible to make anything work in storytelling, no matter how ridiculous or mundane it might be, for me, it's easier to mix the real and the fantastical if you limit yourself to just one or two magical buys or elements that play and then play everything else is, is completely straight especially how characters react to the fantastical. You create magical realism in stories by having as much of it feel real as possible. Like in, in David Lowry's Pete's Dragon, there's a dragon, but everything else in that movie is grounded. So it feels like you could be a kid lost in the woods who stumbles upon a dragon. And that's one of the ways you make magic in a movie or a book feel real. Yeah, and, and and I started with Midnight Brigade just in order, <laughs> but but Midnight Brigade and Outside Nowhere to me are like very imaginative titles. And I, like when I started Midnight Brigade, for me, I was like, I I was drawn right in. Like I I was I was telling Mimi, I said, my wife, you know, it, it's it's you feel like you're not reading a book. You just you're instantly like drawn into the story, the characters. You feel like you're with them. If that makes sense, like certain people, I, I said, yeah, no, this, I, I feel like certain people, they have a, like, you ever listen to like a musician and, and they just have like a, a vibe, you just know that maybe they're not sitting there classically trained, but they can just write a song and it's just, they just know what they're doing. It's like a gift. Right. And that's kind of how I felt when I read your book. I was like, I just, you just have the tone. You have it. it I, I don't know how to describe it other than I was instantly drawn in. I kind of was like, wow, like it's. It's fun to read. We have a, a daughter in middle school. So it's it's right up that alley of, of you know, where she would be, uh, you know, uh, engaged in as well. And I was, again, it, it was very easy for me to, to just kind of fall into the, to your, to your stories. And I was wondering about the creative process, right. And developing, could you walk us through, I know, I know you did a, a good job of that, but is there like some sort of approach that you uh, try to balance like the creativity and relatability for young, like your kids are much younger than what you're writing, right? Yeah. You're a little older than your audience, right? So there's like that spot in between, like, how do you sort of bridge that? Joan, I'm going to probably ramble a bit here, but uh... <laughs> so I've got a lot of germs of ideas for things like bouncing around my head. And usually they stay there for years, just kind of gnawing at me. Like, oh, no, something is just like, it's a thing, but like, it's not a, a book or a movie yet. 
And it's usually, it stays up there until I can figure out how like one big idea can be combined with another big, seemingly unrelated concept. With the Midnight Brigade, it was a troll living under a bridge in Pittsburgh. And that was combined with a family that decides to open a food truck. Two seemingly unrelated ideas that became one because the family decides to park that truck under the same bridge that the troll happens to be hiding. And when the boy in that family discovers that troll, you get a story. So character usually comes next. In that case, it's a quiet, introverted kid named Carl. The next step is the character's arc, which is ideally tied to theme. So in this case, it's about this shy kid learning to come out of his shell and be bold, which will ultimately allow him to accomplish what he needs to at the end of the story. When I have all that, I'm usually ready to start outlining and, and, and cracking the story. As I mentioned, I'm, I'm a strong believer in outlines, but I'm a stronger believer in embracing the unexpected. So I like to be surprised by the details that emerged as, as characters and story lead the way. My initial outlines will often have like literal lines like, and then something bad happens. <laughs> and I, I won't know what that is when I, when I right. start. And that line could be followed by something in the spirit of, and then something happens that makes everything worse. And I use those beats as placeholders to figure out the most unexpected ways to surprise myself and my characters in order to keep the reader on their toes and, and turning pages. Because hopefully if I'm not entirely sure what'll happen next, no one else will either. But I know at least structurally that something bad needs to happen at that point. When I start writing, uh, my outline will be you know, kind of three pages of bullet points. But uh, as I go, characters, subplots, and, and drama will emerge, and the outlines will grow along with the Word doc of my manuscript. I keep both documents open. I have like two monitors working when I, when I write. And uh, that's just to keep track of everything. I make notes on things I want to call back to, you know, things will emerge. I know like I need to get from like X to Z and, you know, hopefully it'll keep me from going too far off the rails. So what starts as a three page outline is closer to a 20 page outline by the time I actually finished uh, a manuscript. I think writing is one of those skills that improves the more you do it and the more you read. Which is exciting because I think that each book I write has the potential to be better than the last. Um, and the more I write and the more I read, the better I've become at creating characters readers connect with and developing character arcs that are easy to follow, how a character learns, grows, and changes. I continue to become stronger at creating emotional themes that feel clear and universal, I think. You know, just getting the underlying message of my stories out or creating tension to keep readers turning pages. Um, you know, again, the more you write, the more you learn what's important and figure out what's in, you know, what approaches work best for your particular style. Writing is equally affected by the moments in front of a keyboard as the ones you have in real life. Uh, the more you live and do, the more you'll be able to draw from and the more tools you'll have to tell your stories. As I mentioned, I couldn't have written my first book, The Midnight Brigade, if I didn't meet and fall in love with my wife and go to Pittsburgh and, and stare at one of those beautiful bridges and think about how much fun it would be to find a troll living under there and keep a troll secret with your friends. So, you know, that's the jumping off point for The Midnight Brigade. 
about that quiet kid, Carl, with a big heart who has trouble sharing how he feels. In Outside Nowhere, the main character, Parker Kelbrook, is an extrovert. He's funny. He's charming. He talks a lot. He's the opposite of Carl. Um, and that was an intentional choice. Um, I okay. didn't want to repeat myself. And I thought it would be fun to have a main character without a filter, someone who lives with a foot in their mouth. About 10 years ago, a friend told me about an organization called WOOF, uh, which is the Worldwide uh, Opportunities on Organic Farms. And it's a loose network of thousands of farmers in dozens of countries that offer young adults or WOOFers the chance to be, uh, you know, to do agricultural work in exchange for food and lodging. It's almost like the, like the Peace Corps or Teach for America, but participants are placed on farms that need a little help. So in exchange for some manual labor, you can you know, see the world, one rutabaga farm at a time. And uh, the concept got me thinking about how something like this might work for younger participants and wondering what secrets or magic might be hidden on one of those farms. So Outside Nowhere is about a kid named Parker who doesn't take life too seriously. And when the story starts, he's more concerned about himself than other people. So as a character, he's got a lot of room to grow. And I think that's an important, helpful thing when you're, when you're writing. Parker pulls pranks and in the opening scene, he pulls one that goes a little too far. He pours 60 gallons of fruit punch mix uh, into a community pool. And his dad sends him halfway across the country on a to go work on a farm in the middle of nowhere. Uh, the farm has three rules. One, do your chores. Two, stay out of the farmhouse. And three, don't eat the crops. Parker's fellow coworkers on that farm are, they're a bunch of kids who are roll up your sleeves type, get the work, uh, get the work done. Uh, so he doesn't really fit in. He's the opposite. And they don't find him quite so charming and funny because he's not doing his chores and it all just makes more work for them. So Parker needs to figure out you know, how things work and learn to grow. And when he does, magical and mysterious things start happening. And not too long after he arrives at the farm, he wakes up one morning to discover a cow in, on top of the roof of a barn. And that's when he discovers that things on this farm aren't as they appear. So it's a fish out of water, city kid, like a Ferris Bueller type on a farm that just might have a bit of magic. And the whole thing came together when I decided that a couple of unrelated story concepts were the same story. As far as relatability goes, the world and the character need to feel real. The world part of it comes back to the magical buys idea. Keep as much grounded as you can. Make the setting feel real. Like what are its flaws? What's an awful and annoying thing about this place? Um, help your readers picture it. Let them imagine what it would be like to live there. Maybe even more importantly, the character has to feel real. Your readers should feel like they know this kid. Maybe they think they are this kid, or at the very least, they should be able to picture this kid. For all this, it's details, 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 and flaws. What are the character's hangups? What's troubling this kid, both internally and externally? What's the kid's problem? Why aren't they perfect? And all that stuff draws you in and makes you makes it feel real and relatable and makes uh, an emotional connection. And as a bonus, it creates conflict and drama, which propels a story and keeps the reader turning pages. 
Yeah, I, I felt like when I read The Midnight Brigade, uh, Brigade <laughs> you know, and I'm not going to give any uh, key, key points away, but, you know, his parents have, you know, they're going through stuff, right? And that's something that kids reading, you know, they're at that age now in, in middle school where they can understand, hey, mom and dad are fighting about the bills or they're fighting, whatever it might be, they can understand that kind of contrasting with outside nowhere. And you see these kids that are, you know, suburban, and then they head out to these rural areas and how different it is. It's like, oh, you know, uh, when are we going to get dinner? My hands hurt, you know, this and this doing this manual labor that they may not be used to, but learning that, hey, these things are actually how a lot of the world works, a lot of the country works, and you're sheltered to a degree and you don't really understand these things, but could you appreciate them? Who knows if he does, right? I don't want to ruin any anything in this story, but it's it's that learning process on on both sides that these kids at that age can sort of, you know, dive into uh, mentally and say, okay, I maybe had it too good at home, or maybe you know it sucks out here, whatever it might be. But the relatability, I think, is really strong in both um, both books for kids, especially that age. So I was kind of curious, and and when you you have a new book coming out, right? This yeah. again. Yeah. Next year, I think. Right. It, yeah. It's uh, April of 24. Okay. So like, does that book like, would is it, could you give us a sneak peek um, in, into what that book's about or any like themes or messages in there that for people interested? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's sort of in the spirit of like a back to the future or, or Groundhog Day type story. And it's about this anxious perfectionist kid who's running for class president and he has no shot of winning until one day at a bowling alley, he runs into a kid who looks exactly like him. And the devil explains that he's him from nine days in the future. And he's come back in time to make all of his dreams come true. As long as he does everything he tells him, no matter how silly and ridiculous it sounds. So essentially, this again is about the funny misadventures of a kid who attempts to orchestrate the perfect day with the help of his future self in a time machine. It's a story about fate and free will, but more importantly, it's a book about a kid wrestling with anxiety and perfectionism, like so many kids out there, learning to accept that life doesn't always go according to plan and that he's good enough. The big theme of this one is no one can do everything. Much of Noah, our lead's anxiety, comes from comparing himself to others, family, friends, classmates, a fear of failure and, and trying to do too much at once. And along the way, he, he learns the importance of balance and that sometimes people appear to have their lives together more than they actually do. And again, it's, it's a magical realism story with a character facing a, a grounded internal and external conflicts with the exception of one fantastical element, that one magical buy, a, a time machine here, right. as opposed to a troll living under a bridge in Pittsburgh or a magical radish farm. And that allows the story and characters to, to feel real and relatable while suggesting to young readers that you know, enchantment and wonder can be found anywhere, allowing the extraordinary to feel believable. Along the way, I, th I think this again will hopefully encourage young readers to, to bounce back from setbacks. And there's a lot of setbacks in this book uh, and take pride in who you are. And while it isn't a traditional STEM book, the, the time travel narrative is based on some actual fascinating theories in, in, in physics. I did a lot of research about time paradoxes that, that 
gave me a headache. Um, but I had a lot of fun talking to a friend who's a theoretical physicist at Brown about how to make a time machine. The, the kid in the book uses a, uh, a bathtub exercise bike and a blender, but uh, <laughs> it's, I, I think it's a lot of fun. So That's this again comes out in, in April and I'm, I'm, I'm over the moon proud of it. No, is it, is it in Pittsburgh? Uh, this one's not. This one's uh, in, in Albany, New York. Okay. Interesting. Okay. No, I'm, I'm excited to read that for sure. I mean, <laughs> if they're as good as the first two, obviously, right? I, I can't imagine there. it's not. You write for like these. No, no, of course. I mean, like when you're writing for younger audiences though, right? When you're thinking of life lessons and values, is there a way that you're sort of incorporating elements uh, into your stories to sort of make, you know, those life lessons, values more like impactful, but also entertaining for the kids? Is there a sort of a strategy to that method? Yeah. I mean, so the strategy is story comes first. It, it, it's got to be the first thing you do. So the most important thing is that readers have a good time and are hopefully transported to that special whimsical place that my favorite story has transported me to as a kid. Another principle that guides me as a filmmaker and an author is that kids are smart. They know when they're being spoken down to. And adults definitely know when they're being presented with a story for kids. So all audience is the goal. My goal is always to entertain the parent watching the movie with the kid or reading the book to the kid because that parent and kid are on the same journey with the story and both of them should enjoy it. And I think that if you're aiming for both, you have the best chance of succeeding. And along the way, when you put your protagonists in trouble and bring them to the low places in the story, that's when your characters can have realizations and learn things or even be told the themes of the story in order to get out of trouble. So again, in the Midnight Brigade, Frank the Troll living under the bridge in Pittsburgh tells Carl, be bold. In Outside Nowhere, Parker learns it's less important how you start something and more important how you finish. And in this again, Noah discovers that no one can do everything, even with a time machine. So hopefully readers, kids and adults can go on these fun rides and, and take away the same pieces of advice from the, that the protagonists learn because the themes are universal and apply to everyone, but also they're so baked into the story that it's all one and the same. Hmm. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Cause like, you know, you have, you have these sort of like children's literature where you have this kind of unique voice, at least you know, for, from what I've been reading, what I've read, <laughs> but I, I often wondered influences for you as a writer, uh, like, were there any authors or, or books that had, uh, you know, a significant influence on, on either your writing, uh, your storytelling or any, any works that maybe inspired you just to get into uh, writing to begin with? Well, it's, um, it's books and movies. Uh, again, E.T. was and is a, a big one for me. The never-ending story, Gremlins, Labyrinth, Dark Crystal, Willow, Flight of the Navigator were all like heavy rotation on uh, my VCR as a kid. <laughs> right. In children's literature, certainly Alice in Wonderland, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, Stuart Little, the Redwall series. Um, a lot of stuff that skews more fantasy than my work. But I, I think that was important as like an, an introduction. And then as I kind of honed in, the list gets closer. And I mean, it's, it's constantly growing. But as a kid, the big ones were Louis Sacker, uh, Roald Dahl, Beverly Cleary, Jerry Spinelli, and, and, and Judy Bloom for books. And um, Steven Spielberg, Joe Dante, uh, Zemeckis, and Tim Burton for films. 
Well, okay, so there's a lot of um, California, right, directors in there, and, and, and you, obviously living in California kind of brings up the environment of, of personal life, right? And obviously we did Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, and now Albany. Uh, the first two, obviously, um, largely influenced by your, your wife. But does California ever play a role in shaping the stories that, that you write and, or any specific acts? aspects of California or, or your family dynamics here, right? I know your kids, like I mentioned, are a lot younger that maybe find your, uh, their way into your narratives. Well, I'm motivated by my family. I write to try to impress my wife and entertain my kids, <laughs> but you know, as you mentioned, my, my kids are young, they're five and three. So I haven't drawn on them from story yet. I'm sure it'll happen. And, you know, as you mentioned, I haven't set any of my books in California yet either. And, but I think I will someday. There are a couple outlines I'm playing with and setting is something that I think a lot about in the early stages of outlining a story. It's a terrible, terrible cliche, but more often than not, the goal is to make the town or city or story is set a character in that story, like critical to the story, almost like the story couldn't be set anywhere else. So as you mentioned, my first book was Pittsburgh because of bridges. The yeah. second was Pittsburgh and Kansas. It's a little less important in my third book, but I'm working on something new set in West Virginia because there's a coal mining element. Mm -hmm. Living and working in California, I mean, it's it's great. It's uh, it's sunny almost every day. It's not too hot. It's not too yeah. cold. It's it's perfect for writing. And I've I've got this little room in my backyard, and unless I'm you know with my wife or kids, I'm mostly in here working. Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, the weather for sure. You cannot, <laughs> it's hard, hard to really beat that here, especially when you get into those Pittsburgh, Albany winters, I would imagine, you know. But like speaking of filmmakers, right, you did say a lot of your influence was filmmakers, right? And, and, and scripts or, or, you know, movies that you've watched. Do you envision, like, or how do you envision these books translating into potential adaptations? And, you know, I, I can't answer for you, but like, would there be interest in seeing these these books turn into animated films or series and, and, and what that creative process would look like, if so? Yeah, I mean, I'm open to anything, but realistically, with my books, they, they have to continue to sell before there's a real possibility of being adapted. I feel like most middle grade, there's, of course, exceptions to everything, but they tend to these books tend to be adapted a decade or two after publication. So they have time to reach like a full generation of readers. Honestly, I'm not sure how involved or not I would be in a process. First off, it would depend on the need, if any. I mean, I can help physically produce a movie, but I don't have the bandwidth right now. <laughs> and I can write a screenplay, but there are a ton of folks that are better than that than me. I, I, th I think they're different skill sets, though, again, there's a ton of overlap. Writing novels is just where I'm most comfortable at the moment. Yeah. No, no. I mean, hey, you're doing a great job at it. So don't don't break with, you know, don't fix it not broken. So experience you have, right, with, with movies and children's books, someone that's listening that's, you know, again, they're two different, you know, trajectories to take, but someone who might be an aspiring storyteller right? Looking to make their mark in either um, movies or, 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 you know, novels or books, whatever. Um, do you have like any advice for people that, that are listening and any key principles maybe that have guided your own success uh, in, in, in these creative industries that you could share? 
Yeah. I mean, I, I think first off, like the most important thing is to create, go make your art, write, make shorts on your iPhone, put together an improv group, like a theater company, do a one person show with the internet. It, it's easier than ever for great work to be found, but you can't make something great unless you put the work in and do it. Two, I would say, trust your instincts. If you believe in something, will it into existence and then protect your vision. Three, I would say, listen to others. If you're getting consensus on a particular note, be open to the possibility that you're either not heading down the strongest path or not executing your vision as strongly as you need to. And those are two completely different things, but they both require a readjustment from you. And four, I would say, be nice to people, return phone calls, reply to emails, grant favors when you can and, and be appreciative. Hey, Joe, thanks for having me on. Oh yeah. Where can people, I was going to ask like, if someone wants to, to, you know, purchase your books or, or just, you know, learn more about you, where's the best place to follow or connect with you? I'm on social media. So Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, but, uh, if you read my books and, and want to drop me a line, I'm, I'm at adamborba.com and, uh, I'd love to hear from you. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate your time today, man. I learned a lot. I think it was, you know, fascinating for people who want to pursue these careers uh, and don't really have an idea how to do either. You shed some really interesting, you know, light on on uh, storytelling techniques, and I appreciate you taking that time. Maybe we could do this again once, uh, you know, the next one, this again comes out in 2024. I'm looking forward to reading it, and uh, obviously we'll be in touch, and thank you again for your time today. Thanks, Joe. All right, take care, Adam. <laughs>